Lord, thank you for uh, Miss O'Day. Thank you for these brothers and sisters. Thank you for the encouragement that they've been to me. And Lord, I just pray that this time uh, of fellowship and of reading your word is an encouragement to them. I pray that it's refreshing to them. And Lord, just please just guide this time as we open your word. Please just give us wisdom and discernment as we try to apply it to our lives, Lord. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. This morning, our text is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 48. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your, only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Standards are both a blessing and a curse. As soon as I talk about standards, there's so many of y'all that their personality is like, I love standards, right? Uh, standards lay out just a clear metric, a discernible metric for success. There's no, eh, that's good enough, right, for us people who like standards. Uh, standards are also a curse. Some people don't like standards, right? Because there is now a clear, definable standard that must be met. And if you don't meet that standard, sometimes there are consequences. You might fail a test. You might not get certified. You might get kicked off a team. And at worst, right at your job, you might lose your job if you fail to meet the standard. But what if the stakes were even more drastic? What if the consequences for failing to meet the standard weren't just temporary, but eternal? And what if that standard you had to meet was perfection? So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, Jesus said, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is the very definition of a hard saying. Is perfection really the standard? Did Jesus really mean perfection? And what are the stakes what are the consequences? And the burning question we all need to ask ourselves is how can we meet this standard? So this section is part of Jesus' famous sermon that he delivered on the mount. It begins in Matthew chapter 5 and, and ends toward chapter 7. And so Jesus begins this section in verse 43. He gives us a little bit of context. In verse 43 he says, You have heard it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So Jesus opens this section with, you have heard that it was said. And so this tells us that Jesus is fixing to handle and correct a misinterpretation of some Old Testament scriptures. He's not going to correct the Old Testament scriptures themselves, but he's going to correct a misinterpretation of those scriptures. And this misinterpretation probably comes from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where God tells his people that they should not take vengeance or bear a grudge against their fellow Israelites or their fellow Hebrews or their fellow Jews, but they should love your neighbor as yourself. And just like any good seven-year-old, 
It's almost like the Jewish leaders, the Jewish rabbis, they saw a loophole here, right? I only have to love my fellow Jews, my fellow Hebrews, and my enemies I can hate. Then Jesus comes in and corrects this bad interpretation of what we think is probably Leviticus 19.18. In verse 44, Jesus says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And so notice the formula here. In the first verse, it says, you have heard it was said. And then Jesus quotes some Old Testament scripture and the misinterpretation. Then he says, but I say to you. And this is a common formula that Jesus follows in the Sermon on the Mount. But when he says, but I say to you, don't miss out on this. When he says that, Jesus is speak, it speaks directly to Jesus' divinity and his divine authority. Jesus has the divine authority to interpret the Old Testament scriptures correctly. Jesus has the divine authority to correct misinterpretations of the law. Jesus, he can lay his words out on the same plane and level as the Old Testament scriptures, as the word of God, because Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus is fully divine. And so this speaks to his his full authority that he has. And so Jesus corrects his misinterpretation, and Jesus' application and his instruction actually end up actually end up resulting in a higher and harder standard. And if we want to talk about the hard sayings of Jesus, we have to talk about this. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This has got to be at the top of the list of hard sayings from Jesus. And notice the mandate here that Jesus is giving. It's enemies, plural, which for us means this is a universal command that extends past one enemy. And notice it's in the present tense. So this is like a continuous attitude and disposition that we're supposed to have towards our enemies, and we're supposed to be continuously praying for those who persecute you. It's not a check-the-box thing, I, I, I prayed for that enemy, and I was loving towards that enemy. No, it's a continuous attitude that we're supposed to have throughout our lives. It's supposed to be a normal rhythm of our lives. And in my experience, people you truly to commit to pray for, they don't stay enemies for very long. People you commit to earnest praying, like earnest prayer for, consistently, uh, it generally leads to changed hearts. Most of the time, it's our hearts, and some of the times, it ends up being their hearts. But prayer here is what we're called to do for our enemies and those who persecute us. This verse really reminds me of Stephen in Acts chapter 6 and 7. Stephen was preaching the gospel, and the Jewish leader sees him. It says that in Acts 16 that Stephen had a face of an angel. This has to do with his his innocence towards them, his his love towards them. And then the Jewish leaders, he delivers this this really strong expositional sermon from the Old Testament Scriptures. And then the Jewish leaders, they pick up stones and they throw them at him until he's killed. During that persecution, Stephen cries out. He prays to the Lord. He says, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And so that's the, the early church history. But if we go a little bit further in church history as well, especially in the first several centuries, when Christians were being heavily persecuted and executed for their faith, the Roman persecution that they faced was meant to stamp out Christianity. It was meant to stamp out the church. But in actuality, it actually served to spread the gospel and to make the gospel even known even further. Historians tell us that the Roman public, they were generally hard and cruel from their experiences. The church historian Bruce Shelley tells us that 
when these certain Roman citizens, when they would view and witness a Christian being martyred or killed, that there were conversions in that moment because those Roman citizens were witnessing a Christian facing torment and death with cool courage, with peace, and with hope. So church history is not always pretty and clean and neat, but it's full of examples of believers loving their enemies in the face of persecution. Jesus continues in verse 45. He says, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sins reign on the just and on the unjust. Now, theologians or people who study the Bible, they refer to this as common grace. That is grace, this, this unmerited favor that the Lord delivers and shows equally to all people. That isn't here, it's the sun and the rain that he gives to everyone. But notice the sovereignty, the power, and the control that Jesus ascribes to God. Look at the possessive pronouns. For he makes his sun rise. God makes the sun rise. And not only does he make the sun rise, but look closer, it is his sun. He owns it. He created it. And so in my own finite mind, if I look out into the natural world and the material world, and I just kind of limit myself to that, and I look out there and I go, what is the most powerful thing, right? In my, just the natural world. And I naturally think about the sun and how powerful the sun is. Now, every second, the sun releases an estimated 384.6 Yoda watts of energy. And that's Yoda watt, not Yoda watt for you Star Wars people. For perspective, a single Yoda watt is the equivalent energy output of a hydrogen bomb. And a Yoda watt is the largest measurement of wattage that we have. And so that's every second. So every second, the sun is firing off 384.6 hydrogen bombs per second. And God created that sun. It's his sun, and he wields the sun. God causes the sun to rise every day on the evil and on the good, Equally, And so when we say that God is omnipotent or all-powerful, when we think about the Son, it gives us a little tisp, a little grasp of just what it means for God to be omnipotent, all-powerful, and sovereign. And so not only does God move the sun around, just kind of like a golf ball in the heavens, but if you look at verse 45, he also sends the rain on the just and the unjust. Now, we could do the same thing here with weather. As powerful as the weather is, how powerful hurricanes and tornadoes are, they are insignificant to the power and the might of the Lord. And God sovereignly sends the rain on the just and the unjust equally. So most of us are not farmers. I, I suspect some of you all probably have some raised beds in your yard. Maybe you grow a little bit of plants. But you realize how important the sun and the rain really are and how crucial they are to growing crops. And this would have been... Um, very evident to uh, Jews and his audience in Palestine during this time because Jew, uh, Palestine is an arid, hot environment. So rain was crucial to growing crops. But what this highlights is, though, is that God is graceful and merciful. God is just, but God is also graceful and merciful. If God were just, justice then he would just smite us and hammer us every morning for all the sins we've committed, right? We wouldn't even wake up in the morning for, for all the sins that we've committed. 
But thanks be to God that he is both just and merciful, just and graceful, just and patient. And so common grace will let us see the sunrise. Common grace will give you water for your crops. But common grace in and of itself will not save us from eternity of punishment. But common grace, like general revelation, like the mountains, is supposed to lead us to repentance and lead us to Christ. And so this verse, this verse really highlights that God shows grace He shows care for all of his creatures. He causes the sun to rise. He causes the rain to fall. And therefore, we, as Jesus' disciples, are called to imitate God. We're called to imitate his character. We're to show love and mercy and patience, just as God shows love to all of his creatures. And we should love both our neighbor and our enemy. We're to be loving and graceful as God is. So Jesus continues with a shocking comparison in verse 46. Jesus says, for if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. Jesus, once again, explains his call to love. It's easy to love those who love you. Jesus is calling for a love that is not based on reciprocity. He's calling for a love that's not based on what others can do for you or how others will love you in return. So Jesus then uses this shocking comparison to draw this out. He says, do not even the tax collectors do the same. So just to be clear, this is not a compliment that Jesus is delivering towards tax collectors. As you probably know, the Jews historically passionately disliked tax collectors because the tax collectors, they represented the Roman Empire, which had taken over Israel, taken over Jerusalem, their capital. And so when the tax collectors would also, when they would pull in money, most of the time they would um, take in more money so they can line their own pockets. And that money that they would take in, it would go straight towards the Roman government who was oppressing them and had taken over them. So there was a passionate dislike towards tax collectors. Matthew was one of Jesus' disciples. He was a fellow Jew. He was a Hebrew, and he was a tax collector, which would have made him an enemy. It would have made him um, a traitor to them. And so when Jesus included Matthew this despised tax collector, into his band of 12 disciples, Jesus was practically living out this Sermon on the Mount that he's delivering. He's practically loving his enemies. He's practically praying for those who would persecute you. So Jesus then says in verse 47, And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. And here's just a practical observation here. The assumption behind this verse is that we will greet those whom we don't know. And for some of you internally, you're thinking, that sounds like another hard saying of Jesus. I've got to greet people I don't know. Uh, especially if you're an introvert, right? If you see those, those coffee mugs on Facebook Marketplace that say, like, it's too peopley out there, and you're drawn towards that, this, here's some hope here. Here's some, here's some grace here. It takes a little bit of courage. It takes a little bit of intentionality to fulfill this verse, but we're called to fulfill it. So I want to encourage you to greet those you don't know because it's biblical. It's here in this verse. And I think one of the biggest barriers towards evangelizing, just in our, just in our normal rhythms of our life, is the fact that most Christians, um, myself included, have a lot of other Christian friends. And so if we spend all of our time with those we know and with other Christians, how can we then fulfill the Great Commission of reaching the lost? 
We have to greet those we don't know, and we have to be in relationships with unbelievers to fulfill the Great Commission. And so I want to kind of challenge you a little bit more here. When someone new attends the church, you should try to use the three-minute rule. When someone new comes in, uh, try to talk to that person for three minutes. Try to make a connection with them. Try to be um, hospitable. Try to be welcoming and warm. Now, I know in a small setting like this, as it is in our core team, that sometimes I could be like sharks kind of circling in the water, right? But we should try to really work towards that. Um, sometimes it's difficult for some to make a connection with people, right? Some of us are not gifted with the spiritual gift of small talk or chit-chat. So what I suggest is the pass-off, okay? This is a really loving thing you can do, right? You meet someone, oh, you're really into sports ball? I don't really know anything about sports ball, but Jake over here knows a lot about sports ball, so let's go talk to Jake. And so then that person then meets Jake, and then they make a connection, and now you've also helped Jake. Now meet someone or greet someone that they don't know, and now they fulfilled the verse. Now that person has another connection with inside the church, and so now we're, it's a win-win. We're all fulfilling this verse, and now we're being more loving, and there's now more connections being made. So I certainly, I certainly challenge you to try to use that as you can. Now the point, though, here, in verses 46 and 47, though, and we don't need to miss this, miss this at all, is that Christians should not just merely love and greet people in the same way the world does. Christians should not love in the same way as unbelievers. No, Christians, we should live out lives that are transformed by the gospel. We should be living out lives that are welcoming due to our understanding of the gospel. So the gospel and our understanding of it should result in behavior that displays the gospel. Let me bear this out for us. So in Romans 15, 7, Paul says, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. So greeting people is a gospel issue. And if we do this right, if we welcome others as we have been welcomed, then we will be displaying the gospel for others to see. So then Jesus lays it on us here in verse 48. Here's the hard saying that we've been building up to. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, this echoes Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2. It says, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And the natural response to this verse is, but Jesus, I, can I really be perfect, right? And that's, that's an absolutely true and right emotion to feel, right? Can I actually be perfect? Can I meet that standard? Now, there's multiple layers here to this hard saying, so let's try to unpack them here. First, perfection for us mere humans is an impossible standard for us to meet. Because according to Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. God is holy. God is perfect. He's without error. He's without sin. God could not and will not lower his standards, because if he did, it would be compromising his perfection. And so let's lay this foundation very clearly. God, who is perfect, cannot waver or compromise his perfect standard, because if he did, it would compromise his holiness, his perfection, his justice. And so the standard for us really is perfection. And in every turn we take, we fail to meet his perfect standard. In our sin, it rightly deserves punishment. And our sin severs that right relationship with the Lord. The marvelous truth of the gospel, though, is that Christ has met the standard on our behalf. This is the good news of the gospel. Here's how the, here's how the Apostle Paul explains this. He explains this good news for us. 
This is 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Paul explains, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me read that again. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So Paul simply and beautifully summarizes the gospel. And he explains that we can only meet God's standard of perfection through Christ's perfect work on our behalf. So theologians, they call this um, imputation. They call it imputated righteousness. And that's that we need Christ's righteousness imputed to us or added to our account because we simply do not have a righteousness of our own. We are sinners by nature. And we cannot make ourselves righteous. We cannot meet God's standard of perfection or holiness all on our own. And we need Christ's righteousness. We need Christ's holiness. And on the cross, Jesus took our sin upon himself and he purchased our salvation. And so on the cross, Jesus took on God's wrath. He took on our punishment that was destined for us. And so by God's grace, through faith in Christ, that righteousness is given to all who would repent and place their faith in Jesus. That's imputation. That's the only way that we can meet this perfect standard. That's the only way that we can be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And so this should cause us to worship Jesus, to honor Jesus, to make much of Jesus, to share Jesus with others. So here's the next layer. Having Christ's righteousness imputed to us means that we are eternally saved, but it obviously, from your own experience, you can attest to this, that we don't always do the right things and we sin and we fail. But Jesus here is calling us towards holiness. We should pursue holiness as a form of spiritual worship. As Christians, we should pursue bringing our lives and our hearts in alignment and conformity with God's Word. Now, there's several paths to encouraging holiness. We could, talk about, uh, we could talk about spiritual disciplines. We could talk about reading God's Word, meditating on God's Word, memorizing God's Word. Uh, we could talk about fasting and prayer. We could talk about mortifying and, or killing sin. We could uh, talk about building rhythms into our lives of confession and repentance with others. And these, these, all these things are crucial to building holiness into our lives and bring our lives into submission to Christ. But what we often miss is love. Love is connected to holiness, and since Jesus is connecting it to holiness in this passage, I want to connect the two for you very clearly, if I can, with just a, just a two-stair-step approach, just so we can get on the porch here. First, we're called to love God. That's the first step we approach. Deuteronomy 6.5 says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. So if we love God with all of our capacities, then we will want to please Him. We want to bring our lives into alignment with His will and His way. If we love God, we will put away our idols. We will conform our lives to His Word. We will put away rebellion. We will put away living to and for ourselves. Jesus said in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So love of God directly relates to holiness. The second step we come to after loving the Lord is love of neighbor, which we see here in this passage. 
If you truly love your neighbor, you will be compelled to look out for his or her best interest. So for example, if we take a case study, we look at the Ten Commandments. There are six of those Ten Commandments that directly relate to our relationships with others. And there's the other four that relate to the Lord. But let's look at those first six. So Paul here helps us once again connect the dots. He helps bring this out a little further. Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, and listen closely here. He says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is fulfilling of the law. Let me read that last part there. Therefore, love is fulfilling of the law. So in other words, if you love your neighbor, you will keep the law. Because if you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from them. You're not going to murder them. Right? So loving your neighbor fulfills the law. So for example, if you were to love your neighbor, you would not violate six of the Ten Commandments. And if you love the Lord, you're not going to violate the other commandments. So love fulfills all of the Ten Commandments. Love is often an overlooked metric or or often overlooked path to holiness. Generally, when we think about holiness, what do we think of? We think about removing things from our life. And that's true, we should, right? We should be removing sin from our lives, but we should also be putting on love, love of God, love of neighbor. And so it's my prayer that we love the Lord more, we love our neighbor more, and we continue in Christ's likeness. So in conclusion, we can sum all this up. We can sum up this hard saying of Jesus in this way. Jesus said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So perfection is the standard. And since we have all fault, we're just all fallen humans, we cannot meet the standard on our own. But if we repent of our sins, we place our faith in Christ, if we love Jesus, love the Lord, then Jesus' holiness, Jesus' righteousness will be imputed and added to our account. That's how we can meet that standard. And if we love the Lord, we will be striving to be holy and grow in holiness. If we love the Lord, we will work to bring our lives in conformity to his word and his rule. And if we love our neighbors, we will not sin against them. But instead, we'll consider them greater than ourselves. And we will look out for their interests instead of our own. And so it's my prayer that we will encourage one another to be more Christ-like in this manner. So would you pray with me as we close? Lord, thank you for your son. Uh, Thank you that through him, we can meet this standard. Lord, help us to put on Christ, to put on his love that he had for uh, those who would persecute him, those who would hate him. Lord, help us to love our neighbors better. Help us to love our, uh, our fellow believers better, Lord. Help us to love all better in order that we could fulfill the law and be perfect as you're calling us to be perfect in your son, Jesus. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen.